You are tuned in to the Way of Healing podcast, where we inspire humans to connect more deeply to their experience of life. My name is OJ. My name is Casey. We are connecting with practitioners to talk about the potential of the innate healing powers within. Welcome back to another episode of The Way of Healing. Today we have a very special guest with us, uh, a little different than what we've traditionally done. Traditionally, we do modalities of healing. Today we're doing a, uh, a healing movement. So today we have founder Alexander Hill, founder of Man Tribe here in Los Angeles, California. Good to have you on the show, brother. Welcome, Alex. It's an honor to be here, and I love what you guys are doing. So can you tell us a little bit more about what Man Tribe is and how you guys are trying to change the world or how to help make this world a better place? Sure. You know, I've been asking the question myself, you know, what does it mean to be a man for the past 20 years of my life? And from growing up as a teenager and, you know, exploring sexuality to, you know, finding a career in Manhattan and New York City in my 20s being in a fraternity in college, all of these experiences that sort of frame masculinity in a way. And as I dove deeper into this question, what does it mean to be a man? I started working with a lot of the men's scholars and and the the authors of, of many books, the archetype work, and a lot of different thought schools and theories on, on men's work. And what I discovered was that for, you know, for the past 20 years, if you take away, you know, the three things, alcohol, sports, and career, you know, most men, I feel like in the United States will not have a whole lot of friends. Yeah, totally. I get it for sure. And, you know, I wanted to start something that went a little deeper than that. And that spoke to the questions that were always on my heart that I was never able to express in the context of, you know, drinking alcohol or in the context of watching a big game or, you know, in the context of the workplace, you know, when the main mission was to make money and anything outside of that, nobody really had time for. Yeah. What is it that sort of spoke to you that helped you, I don't know if you want to phrase it this way, wake up out of sports, alcohol and career? What kind of led you to say, there's definitely more here. There's sacred ancient wisdom to tap into. I don't think it happened overnight. And you know, as a child, I was tuned into that sacred ancient wisdom. I loved crystals when I was five years old. I would sing a lot and connect with my spirit. I think, I think in my younger years, you know, from when I was an infant until maybe I was five or six, uh, I, was, I was very free very playful, very free, and very connected to my spirit. And I believed in magic. And I remember having visions as, as a child of, you know, phoenixes and rainbows and all of these mystical things that my parents could never really ex explain or never really understood. But I remember them really vividly. And I think the, what happened was, you know, growing up in New York City, the question as a young a young child starts to set in, what are you going to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a superhero. I still want to be a superhero. I am a superhero now. But I think it's not long, you know, in our culture, it's not long, you know, whether it's the school system or, you know, parents that didn't grow up to be superheroes or whatever. It's not long before the programming sets in and we are sort of instructed or guided to settle in some way, shape or form. 
to get a job, make money, and and uh, not follow our dreams, right? So it's like, oh yeah, follow your dreams, you know, but you got to make money, or follow follow your dreams, but you know, make sure that you're keeping everybody else happy in the process. That never really worked in New York, especially. I think I think a lot of what moves New York City and a lot of what affected me growing up was that pace and that energy of hustling and being on the go, 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 and always having to be somewhere at a certain time or do something. And it never gave me that time to wonder or to think. So I would say from middle school or high school onward, that that question of what I was going to be would constantly evolve and change. And I could never answer that question. And it always confused me. I would take aptitude tests and I would ask teachers and I would go to career counseling all through high school and college. And I could never answer the question, what do I want to be? Because it was always in the context of a system that didn't really make sense to my heart. So at some point I just settled and I said, well, I'm going to make as much money as possible because it seems like the people out there that have money seem to be the freest or seem to be the most liberated and happy people. You know, in a lot of ways, there was a lot of rebelliousness or a lot of rebellion and a lot of resistance in me, you know, just being from the Bronx and, you know, growing up with hip hop culture. So it was just like, you know, you grow up in that world and and it seems like the guys that, you know, make the money also make the rules and can kind of do whatever they want. So I wanted that freedom. You know, that was the best idea that I could come up with was just to make money and then to get that freedom, which I think most people chase that dream in, in America and yeah. you know, sort of the American dream. And, you know, I'm, once I make enough money, I'll be able to do X. Of course. And that's, you know, the, you know, that's the programming that's, that's kind of keeping this country going. Once I get to this level, I'll be able to go on that vacation or da, 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 and, you know, just not living in the present moment. Yeah. Always chasing something, right? Always looking for the next step or the next thing to buy or the next prize to obtain instead of really being present with where they are and being happy and content with what you have. Not saying in the sense that you shouldn't strive for better or strive for mm-hmm. more, but um, being grateful, I think is a good word. Grateful for what you do have and where you are in life and what life has presented you at this moment so that way you can live in that moment and move forward in a conscious uh, and loving way. Absolutely. And, you know, Casey asked when that when I woke up and I would say, it wasn't really an overnight process. It was kind of like a long time coming and a remembering that that occurred. And I would say when I was about 27 or 28, the second shift in my consciousness happened when I was 15 years old. You know, those who haven't heard my story before, I was the only white kid in my school, in my high school in the Bronx. And I, uh, I dealt with a lot of social pressure. I dealt with a lot of racial pressure reverse racism, racism, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, economic, you know, being a white middle-class kid with blonde hair and blue eyes in a school that was predominantly African-American and Hispanic, that was, that was an experience. And there was definitely a lot of grief, you know, being in that environment, my name in the hallways and around school was white boy. Nobody called me by my name. And it led to what many would refer to as a manic episode at the age of 15. So I was misdiagnosed with bipolar at the age of 15. You know, it it was basically a a fight with my father that escalated into running away from home, being picked up at a shopping mall for shop, so-called shoplifting. 
I wasn't shoplifting, but the security guards did not want me in that shopping mall, you know, in the state, in the energetic state that I was in after running away from home. And uh, so, I, so I was arrested. I was put into a mental asylum uh, for about a month. And at that point, I had gone a couple of days without sleep. And really what was happening at that age of 15, many refer to it as the becoming of a man or a shamanic initiation at the age 13 to 15. And, you know, is when you feel your power, you know, shifting from a teenager or an adolescent into an adult. And I think for most men, it's like 13 to 15 to maybe 16. But that's when, that's when most men should go through a, an initiation, not by their father, but by el other elder men in the community that they're in. And it's something that we don't have in American culture. So this bipolar misdiagnosis was my shamanic initiation. I was put into straight jackets several times in the mental uh, institution. If you guys have seen uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it was kind of like that, but for kids. So it was like most of the people in this asylum were abused, sons or daughters of parents that had abandoned them, uh, sons or daughters of drug addicts, everything from cerebral palsy to, I mean, just a number of disorders were in this whatever we want to call it, the cuckoo house or this place where a lot of spirits were trapped. And now my spirit was trapped too. And I tried to escape several times. I was very resistant to authority. It made me sort of more of an animal that I, than I had been when I got in there. So it was a very difficult experience to get through that. Eventually I was diagnosed with the highest, uh, the highest prescriptions of lithium, respiratol and Depakote. And I started to realize that if I didn't play nice and didn't abide by the rules, I would never get out of there. So about, about a month later, and you know, I wrote some letters of apology and some certain things to the doctors who had big egos and you know, started to play nice and eventually got out of there. And uh, I was diagnosed bipolar for life. I was you know, mandated by that hospital and I guess the court to take my medication for the rest of my life. And my parents were divorced at the time, so I would go back and forth between their houses and I put on about 60 pounds in the next two months on that medication. I failed out of the sports teams that I was playing on. I failed out of most of the classes and honors society that I was in. And I, I sort of began losing my spirit and my life and I became borderline suicidal. I was very close to taking my own life after gaining the 60 pounds in two months and losing most of my friends and people not even recognizing me or remembering, you know, who Alexander Hill, you know, was before that whole uh, bipolar diagnosis. And uh, eventually, after some many difficult weeks and months, uh, I convinced my mother to stop giving me the medicine, the quote unquote medicine. And she stopped making me take the poison. So now I was on half dose because my dad would still have me take the medicine when I was over at his house. And I love my dad. It's all good. It's just, you know, everybody was going through a learning process about what was best for me at the time. And a few months later, I, I stood up to my father. I said, I'm not taking another pill and uh, basically weaned myself off the medicine and uh, haven't taken any prescription drugs since and just found holistic ways to heal myself. And it wasn't until about 10 years later that I found the plant medicines, psychedelics, ayahuasca, and all the traditional native ways of healing that are aligned with the earth energies and nature. So basically, once I 
began connecting with nature and connecting with these plants, I found the answers to the questions I'd been asking my entire life. Really cool story. It's part of the reason why I wanted you to come on here to tell your story, because it's an important story to be told. And there's a lot of people that are very similar to you with very similar stories that are lost and are looking for something. And for me, your your story represents hope for these kids that are lost or these adults now that are lost that need that are looking for something. And you've come from that and you've built a community of people that are like minded and that support you and you're you're starting a family soon. How much how much has the fact that you're going to become a father uh, influenced you in starting this this man tribe or this movement? I, I believe that starting man tribe in a lot of ways was selfish because a lot of the healing that we do is for myself. And the beautiful thing about that is, is because it's a community and because we have Troy Casey involved and, you know, Troy in a lot of ways is a, a great mentor and father figure with two kids of his own. It's yeah. great to have him as part of this movement with all his knowledge and, and wisdom, you know, being in his fifties and keeping his health and vitality, you know, like a man in his twenties, it's pretty incredible. So I would say becoming a father has everything to do with the work that I'm doing now because I believe that, you know, it's the natural evolution of being a man is to, you know, eventually become a father. And I, you know, when I was growing up in my twenties and to this day, you know, a lot of my, you know, friends from New York and, and people that I grew up with still, you know, in their thirties, forties and fifties have not made the decision to become fathers. And you know, I think about the mindset that I used to have about becoming a father. It seems like this huge undertaking and huge responsibility, and it is, but it becomes so intimidating to men, and especially the way that men are suppressed in this day and age, like right now in 2019, most men are not even close to their power, you know, to operating or living in their power. So because men are suppressed, not living in their power, adding another element to that equation seems like the scariest thing in the world that they will never even do. And, and when it comes time or when, even when they meet an amazing woman, it's like still a scary thing. It was scary for me to, to step into that void or to step into that unknown of, wow, I'm getting married. And within the same year, I'm probably going to have a child too. When I met my wife, she was 36 and, you know, I knew that was part of the program and I knew she was the woman that I wanted to be with. And, and I knew that I was going to have a child with her very soon. So it, it was literally, I had 24 hours to make that decision to, to married and, and I knew getting married would mean children very soon. So due to Trump's border policy, I guess this is like one of the good things that came from Trump's border policy, <laughs> which is, uh, it put that pressure on me because my wife was living in Canada at the time. And we had been going back and forth between Montreal and Brooklyn at the time, which is where we were living. And uh, the border said, you can't do this anymore. And you said, well, what's going on here? And, you know, her lease was up and we, you know, I filled the van with all her stuff and we were basically moving to the U.S. And I thought I could get away with that and pull that off. And I was like, hey, baby, just, you know, take the Greyhound. I'll pick you up in Burlington and we'll, uh, we'll figure it out. You know, like all this cowboy maverick you know, superhero mentality, but sure enough, her passport, she, she made it across the border, but the, the officer said, oh, you will, you know, you only got three days 
you know, go to your yoga festival or your music festival or whatever you, you hippies do. And cut, you got to be back in, uh, you got to be back in Montreal in three days or else, you know, and he, he made her cry and intimidated her at the border. And, you know, I picked her up, she was crying and, and I knew that I had to, to make a move as a man. And I knew it was time to, to shit or get off the pot or to step up to the plate as a man. And at 31 years old, get married and throw out all the BS that I had created that, oh, I was going to make $10 million and wait till I'm 40 and have a couple kids with a younger woman and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of that stuff I had to come to terms with and face my own shadow. And, and that was a huge undertaking, very intimidated at the time and very scared to step into that. But the best things I've ever done for myself, ayahuasca included, were stepping into things that I knew absolutely nothing about jumping out of a plane, same deal, you know, just stepping into that void, stepping into that unknown, jumping in the ice bath, being scared a little bit and just leaning into that. Yeah. Alex, I'm a woman and I have done lots of women's work and I have men who've done sacred men's work in my life. And OJ talked about, you know, this isn't a traditional interview, But I kind of feel like this is all of the healing, right? It's many different modalities presented in a way where you get together with people and you are addressing, you're stepping into, you are maybe revealing shadow or you're kind of doing a lot of healing work in one space. So what does some of this work entail? May I uh, speak on my experience before we go into your... Your side? Only if I can speak on my ice bath experience and say that I'm sitting here shivering, <laughs> trying to keep my voice steady. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. So we did. We, we jumped into a ice plunge uh, here at Alex's healing center prior to the interview, and ice spa. Ice spa. I knew I was in for it too. I just there was no way out. Yeah, ladies first. Go for it. What do the, you want to talk the experience? about? I mean, I, I do I do hydrotherapy. I've done plunges before. I do it regularly with clients even at, at the local pool. Um, you know, we'll do a hot and a cold and a rest. And I've been to Scandinavian spas. and But I've had a lot going on emotionally for me lately. And so I've been holding on to more. And I've had more tension in my body. And so I knew this one would be a little bit more difficult because my nervous system is ramped up. And because I'm in this sort of chronic fight or flight sympathetic place right now. So I'm shivering. Normally I don't shiver quite like this, but I'm shivering and that's okay. I'm grateful. It's a calm shiver. (laughs) Yeah. Because when I'm shivering, my teeth, everything is just shaking, uh, which is actually the, the body's response. It's, it's, you know, the, the mitochondria and the cells are actually reprogramming and the the shivering is, is amazing for our body. It's uh, it's a really, it's, it's obviously designed to keep us alive. It's the body's survival response and really the shaking, it's the shaking removes the trauma. It's like when, you know, a lion gets the gazelle, but doesn't fully get the gazelle and the gazelle gets away, you know, they've done research and, and studies and they, they follow the gazelle and they say, and after a while, the gazelle goes into uncontrollable shaking and just, just shakes all of the trauma of that attack off. And then is just right back to little gazelle 101 land and, you know, yeah. going through its motions. And that's exactly what's happening here. 
you know, whether it's dancing or shaking or any sort of like intense movement, the ice is the ultimate, you know, the ice is like, when you jump in that ice bath, you don't have much of a choice, but to breathe and go to that place. And the cold is just always the cold and it's always there waiting for you. Mm -hmm. So the excuses, the fears, everything, the cold just doesn't care. And it's just there and it just is. And anything that's not really aligned with the energetic body will be shaken out or frozen out in a way. And, you know, the longer, the better, the longer, the better that, you know, you can stay in. And obviously it it takes a certain level of being in tune with the body. You don't want to stay in for longer than you're ready for. It's really nice to work your way up in time that you're in the ice bath and temperature as well. Um, And to just do, you know, just push yourself, but not in a irresponsible way. Yeah. So what's this man tribe stuff, OJ? So funny thing is uh, when I when I went to the first man tribe back in November, I did it the day after I did a Wim Hof seminar and we we did the cold plunge and the ice baths and the breathing and whatnot. And uh, so it was a cool little one, two punch. But when I went to man tribe, I did it with my brother and my father, which was a very special experience for, for me to have with them, to share with them. It was my brother's bachelor weekend and so I knew it was important for him to experience because he was becoming a, a husband and, and potentially a father one day. But it was really cool to experience it with our father. And it wasn't until, I would say, July or August of last year when my father first said, I love you to me. And I go up to my dad and I'm like, Dad, I love you. And he's like, yeah, 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 okay. I'm like, Dad, I love you. He's like, yeah, yeah, me too. I'm like, no, Dad, I love you. And so finally, my dad was like, oh, I love you too, son. And that was the first time in 32 years that my dad said, I love you. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, and dad. Was that at wow. the Man Tribe lunch break? No, no. This was a couple months before. A couple months before. So going into Man Tribe, I knew it was, it was totally out of my dad's element. My dad is, it was not his thing, but um, for him to be open to going to that event with us was was pretty cool. And I knew that just having exposed to this type of work and these people, it would open his eyes up a little bit to my way of being, right? And so we went and my brother had his experience, but my dad, my dad made it halfway through. And it was a lot of journaling. It was a lot of reflection. It was a lot of internal work. There was movement involved. There was speaking your truth and sharing with other men who you are and what you want to be and the way you you see yourself. Um, And there was a really important question you guys uh, had us contemplate about, and it was, if money weren't an issue, what would you be doing today? And so my dad goes through all these things, and uh, he's a bit overwhelmed. He has to get in front of a bunch of men and talk, which he doesn't talk. And it was interesting because all he could really say was he was retired. And that was his story. And uh, we went on a lunch break, and we talked, my brother and I, we talked to our dad. And it was like, Dad, is that what you want to be known for? Just the guy that worked and retired? He's like, yeah, well, yeah, that's what I do. That's what I did. And I'm like, well, if that's the case, then your life's done. You have nothing to live for. You can die tomorrow and be happy with your life. He's like, yeah, that's fine. I'm like, it's not fine. You have grandkids to look after. You have kids to look after. And so we get to talking to him and and we start digging and digging and digging. We finally get him to a point where he says, 
well, I come to see you guys because I love you guys and because I miss you guys. And so for that, for my brother and I to hear that from our father was huge. And it was thanks to, to the work of Man Tribe that my dad was able to open up in that sense. And we got to share that experience with him. And not a lot of people get that from their father. Took my dad this long and, and there's fathers out there that are a lot more masculine than my father in the sense where they don't open up at all. Uh, traditionally, the Filipino culture and the Mexican culture, the African-American culture, there's a lot of cultures out there where men are supposed to be these patriarch figures that don't show emotion and they have to be strong and they can't show, uh, show weakness and they can't show emotion. And so for me, this work is really important because I have daughters and there's little boys out there that are going to start chasing them and I'm going to start screening you and sending you guys over to Man Tribe. And like, you guys need to do this work first before you start dating my daughters. <laughs> but no, it's, it's important as a movement going forward to help us as men open up and, and tap into that feminine side of us, but at the same time embracing the masculine side. Of, of who and what we are. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. And, you know, you hit it spot on and honoring you for bringing your father and your brother to do, you know, the Man Tribe event. It was it was really a pleasure and a blessing to have you there. And I hear what you're saying about the tradition, the traditional masculine role of what we're supposed to be like or supposed to do. And for me, it involved a lot of competition. Yes. And it was sort of like I was forged into this lone wolf when I really wanted to always be in a pack. But it seemed like every time I tried to form a pack, either myself or another man in the pack would somehow deviate or somehow want more. Right. Right. So, so. I think in the past, the men that I formed alliances with in business or drinking or chasing women, whatever it may have been, those alliances were not rooted in the deepest form of our personal truths. Those alliances were rooted in chasing something outside of ourselves. And that's why those alliances no longer stand today. And you know, the best work that we can do as men is to show emotion with other men and open up ourselves and be vulnerable and go there and, and to, to know that we're supported. And there's not one day that goes by that I can claim to be, you know, founder, co-founder of Man Tribe and, and continue to do this work without being vulnerable myself and without getting the support myself for, from the brothers. In a lot of ways, we feel like it's important to have leaders and and we're always switching the leadership up we're always having guest speakers this next event we're going to have uh ryan rhino hughes who was a motocross legend and he's sort of like the modern day evil knievel michael jordan of motocross and he's had over 20 injuries in his body and you know broke all, you know so many bones and bounced back from every single one and just keeps on moving this guy's spirit and his will to live is so divinely masculine and divinely true and it was such a beautiful occurrence the way we met him because after this last injury that he he had of breaking his femur about 3 weeks ago he said you know I think it's time for a shift I I, I want to 
come to your event and I want to speak it. I want to share with you guys and I want to, you know, be a part of this man tribe that you guys have going on. And we welcomed him right in because he's such an inspiration for so many men in the motocross community and so many men that are competitive, athletic and driven, you know, and here's a guy who, who rose to the top, you know, is going from Yang to Yin in a lot of ways. And he's doing really beautiful work. And, you know, it just shows us that this shift and this change that's happening on the planet right now is happening simultaneously, whether we like it or not. And we're all being called to change and to evolve and to, to surrender. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of the macho masculine men that can either lead to confusion or it can lead confusion and chaos or misunderstanding, or it can lead to a, a really beautiful opening of the heart and, and surrender, which ultimately is, go, is going to be what this old paradigm masculine needs to survive and move forward into this Aquarian age. And, you know, I, I was at a, a talk last night, actually, and it was a, a, with many female entrepreneurs and it, it was sort of this fifth wave of feminism and it was a panel with a lot of successful women and you know there were a few men in the room but uh it was mostly a, a female crowd and it's really really interesting to me at, you know doing the men's work to be in the midst of a crowd that's majority female because the way that i see it and the way that i believe is that when we do our men's work it is best for the healing process that it's only men. Hmm. And likewise, when women do their work, it is best for the healing process that is, it is only women. And I firmly believe that because that's how it's been done in ancient cultures for thousands and thousands of years, and it's been effective. And it, it balances the polarity of the sexes, and it allows men to align with the men and it allows women to align with the women. So maybe some of the men are out of balance. They will come together and find the balance within them. Maybe it's the leader or maybe it's, it's some of the men that are just having a really good day or supporting the men that aren't and vice versa with the women, same thing, right? So it's this intergender balancing that occurs, right? And what I noticed yesterday was I was one of the few men in the room is that men and women both talk about the other sex. And if the other sex is present, it might not be the healthiest thing for them to hear. And that's okay. And what I realized was that this event was not for me. And, and you know, it was, in, it was in the yoga community. It was women who I respect and admire very, very much. But the conversation took a tone of, this is not benefiting me to hear right now. And that's okay. And I politely left. And I think what, what it really comes down to is a lot of women have had trauma and a lot of that trauma comes from the actions of men in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's very important for them to be able to discuss that trauma and to share that trauma with other women and possibly other men too that can support them. But what I think it goes sort of out of balance or haywire is when people say the masculine is this. Or, or the word toxic masculinity, when those words are together, it makes my blood boil because masculinity is not toxic. And yes, there's all sorts of stuff happening right now. Yes, you know, 
men tend to to make more money than women in the workplace and all of these things you know you could cite this evidence and this evidence and and separate us all day long but really at the core of it i i think what it comes down to is that masculinity is not toxic and that the men that are doing the good work need to be highlighted more by the women Hmm. and maybe the women just don't know they exist yet Right. So maybe the women might still be in that story of like, oh, my God, every guy I've dated has been horrible. And no, no guy's going to step up to the plate and, you know, have my babies <laughs> or, you know, maybe a lot of women are just going through that. And and but there are men out there. There are men out there that are doing the good work. And as a man being in that environment, it was hard to be there. Yeah. It was hard to be there because I came from that masculine that I'm not necessarily proud of, but that I was able to heal. Right. Right. And it's almost like, yes, I used to be that guy that they're talking about, but I did the work. Yeah, totally. So now it's like, all right, all right, all right. Like I'm taking, you know, all these hits for the masculine, but I'm like, wait a minute. I'm standing for something now and I want to be heard and I want to be acknowledged for what I'm standing for today. Right. I know I've done some stuff in the past, but there are a lot of men out there that are doing the work that are still getting chastised mm-hmm. for things that they may have done in the past. And maybe they've asked for the forgiveness. And all I'm asking for is, you know, if, if women don't think that men are out there doing the conscious work, it's happening. And this movement is very alive and well. Amen. And and it's really just a matter of highlighting these men, you know, like Preston Smiles and all of these guys that are are doing men's work. There's so many of them that are that are bringing men back into that sacred sacred masculine. It's uh, it's very sacred work, and it takes a real man to step into it. It's easy to live on the surface and to live in the conditioning that we've received from our society or our parents or our lineage or whatever it is. But ultimately, if you find a sense of spirit, if you find a sense of connectedness, then like you're saying, there is no such thing as toxic masculinity. It's an oxymoron, just like jealous love is an oxymoron, right? There is no jealousy in love. There is no, love doesn't have space for that 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 ego that's our ego and stepping into conscious work requires a willingness to walk through the fire and walk through the fire and walk through the fire and it's never done the work is never done it's not like you arrive at a place and you're like great i'm all set i'm super enlightened now the universe will continue to challenge us so you having the willingness to walk through the fire and then extend your arms to other men is helping elevate and i always say that that um i we were talking about tatiana and it's like you know her willingness to step into the dance community and say yeah i look different i'm a different size and it's okay encourages other people to say i can also dance i don't have to be afraid of this so what would you say to a man who is struggling with his ego and wants to find love or says that he wants to find love, but it's just real strong, that ego, that protectiveness, that armoring that he has learned for however many decades? Well, that was me five years ago. So what would I say to that guy? I was actually just about to write a letter to myself from five years ago and, and address that 
exactly in the way that you phrased it. So do you want the gentle version or do you want the... Uh, we're, we're rated as explicit. The, the pull it together version. <laughs> you can, you can give us all of it if you want. <laughs> uh, if I was one. talking to myself from five years ago, I was very, very stubborn and very, very headstrong. I would have needed a direct challenge from a man to do something like jump in an ice bath or do something like, you know, ayahuasca. And it would have to be from a man that I trusted and connected with. And at the time, there weren't that many men that I trusted or connected with. So that ultimately lies the challenge, right? These guys running around with, you know, the big egos we want to call it, or, you know, this entitlement or whatever it might be, God bless them. You know, I can relate, you know, the, the, the providers, so to speak, these guys that say, okay, I figured out how to work this money system. I've made some money for myself. I have these freedoms. I can pretty much do whatever I want. Uh, I'm the boss or I'm a, I'm a king because of that. What would I say to that guy? Or even the guy who hasn't made money. Just the guy who's struggling with ego, who knows that there's something else, who knows that it can go deeper, but is like possessive and wants to hold on to everything mm. that he has because of let fear. Me, let me ask yeah. you, so, so my experience in, you know, growing up in New York, in a lot of ways, the, the ego that I created was, was sort of around money because that was the main challenge in New York. And that was the main way to show our, our power was, was, was as a businessman, as a commercial real estate broker, it was like, these guys have money. We need to be more like them or, you know, and that was the programming that I experienced. So, so for me, the ego and the money relationship, they were very intertwined. And so for someone maybe who doesn't have that intertwinement as much, what would be sort of the the drive of their ego would it be like maybe their achievements or or something not so much related to money or maybe it is related to money but maybe it's lack of and that mm. creates you know uh interesting yeah i you know so i've having been a, a real estate broker in new york and and coming into some success in my 20s and experiencing that life and then diving into the spiritual world and experiencing that world and living in a van and traveling for a while and being nomadic. I see both sides of the coin. And I think there was definitely a point in my journey where I became sort of like money, anti-money or money resistant and like, oh, like, you know, this system is so bad and this system is so messed up and, you know, we're going to find a better way and I'm going to be part of that way. And, and I was broke. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, there were parts of that old guy in New York that were good because he was able to provide and, you know, he didn't really understand the system as much, but he was able to provide for himself and those around him and get things done. And I feel like for a lot of people, the spiritual path can very easily take a direction where disempowerment can turn into something really, really evil right? And then blame can become really, really apparent. So because, you know, I don't have something in my life or because, you know, I feel like a lot of the spiritual community, there's, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness and there's a lot of blame. And 
it's just really a misunderstanding. And I, I think if we just come back to what it is and the work that needs to be done in this world, we need to be able to operate in the current money system. We need to be able to simultaneously develop the new system. And we, be, we need to have the strength to transition those systems. But, you know, if somebody, you know, is completely rejecting of what is, what is right now is that we have a money system in place, which is, you know, a debt slavery system and fiat currency. And it is what it is. And it sucks, but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what the world's running on right now. So, so until this new idea comes out or this new mass adoption currency or, or, or way that, you know, is more widespread and uniform, I think we have to be realistic about the situation that we're in and operate in the reality that we live in. So, so if anybody has the spiritual ego, they say that's the worst kind of ego is the spiritual ego because it's like, oh, I've done ayahuasca. So, you know, now I'm enlightened or, you know, I went and lived in India for a couple of years or blah, you know, whatever. I guess the question is, what are you doing in your life and how many people are you helping? And that may or may not involve money. I mean, there was a woman on the panel last night who, who spent 40 days on Skid Row and serves 10,000 people a month in LA, homeless. Whoa. It's called Lunch on Me. And we got to hear her speak, the founder. I, I don't remember her name, but uh, that's some pretty uh, egoless work or, you know, Dharma-driven work right there. So, so... I guess for anyone that has spiritual ego or money ego, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to dance between those two things because neither one is really for, for the greater good. Right. And, and it really comes down to is, is, are you smiling in your life? Are you happy? And are you sharing that with others? And if you are, then money can be a tool. Right. You know, working with money consciously, I love reading these books about abundance and you know, conscious manifestation because it's, you know, you pay your bills, you pay your Verizon bill and you bless, you bless the bill. <laughs> you pay your rent and you bless it. You know, you, oh, what else? You pay your taxes and you bless it. I mean, that's the level that, you know, we can be operating at theoretically. We're, we're constantly in a state of gratitude and, and giving thanks even for those bills that we don't want to pay and those checks that we don't want to write. You know, it's there for a reason. And right. this evolution is happening and we just need to trust it, that it's all here to teach us something. And the big picture, who knows what that looks like or what's in store for us, but it's going to be really good. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're co-creating it as we speak. And, you know, whatever story that we're telling on an everyday basis, we're co-creating this new reality all together with this podcast, with the Man Tribe community with all of the conscious and spiritual communities. I mean, we're, we're co-creating it right now as we speak. Oh, yeah. Again, uh, we talked about this in the other podcasts, but finding where you fit in into this huge equation of moving the world forward, right? And Casey and I are lucky enough that we found something that makes us happy and that brings us joy, that we have found a platform that we can share that with people. And uh, it's, a, it's a really good feeling. Um, knowing that you're you're stepping into your power and that you're using whatever tools you were given in this life for for good and for a bigger purpose, it's uh, it's rewarding. Yeah.
I love what you guys are doing and the way of healing, I think is such a incredible name and just, you know, addressing the different modalities of healing and speaking to the practitioners out there in the field, you know, the people doing the, the honest, good work that sometimes aren't the type to go on social media and tell everybody about it, you know, just really going behind the scenes and, and finding those healers that are, that are very, very gifted and special human beings and, and shining some light on, on them. Yeah. I yeah. really honor you both for doing that. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. And if it's something to keep in mind too, for our listeners, it's like these people we have on the shows aren't speakers. They're not big social media presence people. They're not, not all of them. Uh, they're not people that usually get up in front of a, a group and, and speak their truth. And, and that's okay. We're more trying to capture people's truths and their authenticity and their passion and their why behind what they're doing and really giving people that platform to share what they love. We talk about work as a healer often is very secluded in a way. It's like you and a client and then the, that client's out the door and the next client comes in the door. So sometimes it can be very insular and almost isolating, not really isolating, but having community and creating community among healers is something that strengthens the braid. It strengthens the fabric and the weave of this spiritually elevated consciousness that we're all a part of, that we know that we're a part of, that we have to be willing to talk about and spread and share and invite other people in. I find that so many people are afraid of talking about it because well, that's not what I was raised to believe or nobody is talking about this. And sure, there are people talking about it and that's what we want to do. We want to share that. Yeah, yeah. And just like we're sharing your work and how not a lot of men out there want to talk about masculinity in the way that you're talking about it. And we're doing it or you're doing it in a way that is open and inviting and welcoming to anyone and everyone who's willing to do the work. Yeah, my, my biggest challenge lately has been going back into the real estate world. And after taking about two years off on this healing journey, meeting my wife and the journey of having a child, the latest and greatest challenge is, is to get back involved with real estate in a new conscious way and to complete that hero's journey. I've done a lot of work with the gene keys and Richard Rudd and, and one of the gene keys, I can't remember which one, he speaks about the path of healing and the path of finding your dharma or finding your work in the world and, and sort of going from like material to spiritual. And he said that, you know, the biggest challenge in that work is going from material to spiritual and back to material. Mm -hmm. Because now when the purpose is clear and when the reason and the why has been hashed out, you add money to that equation and you're a massive game changer on this planet. You know, a lot of the spiritual leaders have been spiritual leaders their entire life and, you know, they've accumulated wealth or as much money as they need to get their message out there and do their mission. You know, the, the Dalai Lama and Osho and, you know, all these greats, you know, have, have accumulated wealth through the means of spirituality. Um, but I think for me, my path is, is working with that everyday guy or working with the guy who's a real estate broker 
and I recently joined a, a very the fastest growing real estate company in the country, which is a cloud platform model. And they're sort of changing the game, you know, just like, you know, Lyft changed the way taxis are taken and Airbnb changed the way, you know, the whole hotel industry and where you spend the night. This EXP is, is changing the real estate game because they're giving brokers more of their splits and commissions and allowing them to work from home and have virtual support. And they're really building out that virtual support platform. So there's no need for brick and mortar offices anymore. So it's adapting and changing the whole real estate model. So basically there's 17,000 agents in this company and being a part of this company is really a beautiful thing because this company is going global and everyone that joins this company has already taken that risk and that shift to say, okay, I'm going to move from this brokerage that I've been working for, for 10, 15, 20 years. I built my whole brokerage career at this company and I'm going to shift to a cloud-based tech model. That takes some that takes some balls for most most of the guys and the women that <laughs> that make that shift. It's like okay, you know, leaping into the unknown a little bit, and you know, this company is is blowing up. So it's an honor to be a part of them and sort of working in commercial, building out their commercial uh, infrastructure here in LA, and just being part of that and getting back to the work and just being myself in the process of doing deals and doing the work that I did for so many years in New York is really beautiful. And to know that I can go back and, you know, lease a store or sell a building and now put that money to my mission and bring, you know, the guys that sell their buildings to Mantribe. Yeah. You know, that really lights me up and inspires me. And and gives me hope. And then, you know, I feel like real estate is such an important part of the equation in this world because land is not getting cheaper and land is something that is always going to be desirable and valuable on this planet. So the way the relationship that we have with our real estate and our land is going to be very, very important in this new paradigm and creating this world of you know, whether it's permaculture or just shifting to saving this, this planet and saving this, you know, the nature that's on this planet. I, th- I think what people do with their real estate is going to be a very p- important part in that equation. For sure. Yeah, it's very cool to, uh, to reframe your real estate, right? To, you sort of left, I don't know if you left it, but you you took it in another direction to have a spiritual mission or a deepening or a consciousness awakening. And it's a real test to come back around to the thing that you left with a new set of paradigms, a new set of um, ideas, muscles, right? Are the muscles, is the muscle memory strong enough that you can maintain your spirituality in the face of coming back to real estate and sort of blast consciousness through that? That's beautiful. And it, it is a test. So one of the things that I was walking on the beach the other day and I, I, you know, everyone knows that plastic straws are a major issue on this planet. And I started to see hundreds of plastic straws on the beach and I started to pick them up. And the straws that I picked up were big gulp straws, orange straws from Dunkin' Donuts, red and white straws from McDonald's. And I just kept picking up. I picked up about a hundred straws and 
it got me thinking, you know, that the types of commercial real estate deals I used to close, I've done a 7-Eleven in downtown Manhattan. I did a Dunkin' Donuts deal in the Bronx. And here I am picking up these straws on the beach with these companies that uh, are not consciously offering anything to the world other than sugar and caffeine addictions. And I'm picking up these straws. And I say, well, I'm responsible. I had part in one of the, in, in putting one more Dunkin' Donuts and putting one more 7-Eleven. And uh, who knows, maybe, maybe these straws, you know, washed up from uh, the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean and who knows. But, but it got me thinking, you know, that every action that we take in life, you know, comes full circle. Mm-hmm. Would, the, would those stores have been opened up with, if I wasn't the broker on them? Sure, probably. But just the fact that I had part in that and then I'm picking up the straws on the other side of the equation, I said, okay, I have a choice. And if I go back into real estate, I can choose who I work with and I can choose which deals that, that I do. And I can just stand in my truth because at the end of the day, the thing that shifted is, is money is no longer the be all and end all. And I will not chase that dollar if it means sacrificing my, my, my spiritual belief or running away from my truth because there's nothing more important than that. And it's just an honor and a blessing to have that opportunity to go back and to do business in maybe just a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of the industry is similar and a lot of the industry is, is still commission-driven and money-driven and, and I can rock with it and I can dance with it. And I'm excited to sort of go back into that world with new eyes. Alex, how can we find you if people are wanting to get in touch and find out more information? If somebody maybe, you know, can relate to your story and, and wants to talk to you or, or, or seek guidance, what, uh, what are some of the ways that we can get a hold of you? Sure. Well, on Instagram, it's, it's uh, man.tribe is the Instagram handle. The website is mantribe.me for our Man Tribe events. And then alexander-hill.com is my personal website and uh, always available and always open to, to anyone that wants to learn more and find ways to get support. Very cool. Cool, thank you. Is there uh, anything else that you wanted to touch on that we might have missed during the interview? Um, just want to give thanks and honor all the indigenous people on the planet and all of the teachers of my wife and I who have been monumental in, in our healing process and, and just giving deep gratitude and thanks to all of the healers and all of the people out there shining their light at a time where it needs to be shined more than ever. And, uh, just just uh, in deep awe and gratitude of all those special souls out there doing the work. And I would just say keep on shining and keep on moving. Awesome. I like it. Consciousness shift requires the individual, the work on the part of the individual. So we all have to work from love and give from love in order to send that out into the world. Alexander Hill, thank you so much for being on our show today. Pleasure having you. Thank you, Brother, for, thank you for sharing your ice spa with me that I reluctantly <laughs> stepped into and, uh, and your, your beautiful space here and yeah. Yeah. Wishing you lots of success and prosperity and continued yeah. we're, we're evolution. Hope, we're hoping your story has inspired 
hundreds, if not thousands of people, men, everyone out there to, uh, to do better. Mm. And the I Spy is open for business and it's also free. Awesome. Hey. So anyone that, that's ready for 32 degree water deserves a free ice bath. Yeah. <laughs> ice and water should be free. Can I, can I get like a, 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 um, a customer card and like you'll stamp me every time <laughs> and then like the 12th one or the 10th one, well, if it's free, I don't know. Maybe I have to pay for it because it's the opposite. <laughs> thank you, brother. Yeah, Thanks for cool. coming on to the show. And yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to The Way of Healing. We hope that you find yourself inspired. If you enjoyed our show, a gift is to let others know. And we want to hear from you. Please share your feedback so we know how our work is resonating. Make us aware of modalities and practitioners whom we may not know. If you haven't already, please subscribe at thewayofhealingpodcast.com. Our email is thewayofhealingpodcast at gmail.com and find us at facebook.com forward slash thewayofhealing. Remember, a rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs>